Welcome to another episode of NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. I'm Ada Yi, a fifth-year graduate student in Lu Chen's lab here at Stanford. Today our guest is Michael Shadlin, a professor of neuroscience at the Kavli Institute for Brain Science at Columbia University. We will discuss his take on consciousness, perception, and his research studying sensory decision-making. We will also let him give us a teaser about his upcoming talk at Stanford. All this coming up. We're here with Dr. Michael Shadlin, a neuroscience professor at Columbia University for the Kavli Institute for Brain Science. Thank you for speaking with us today, Professor Shadlin. It's a pleasure. So where did you grow up and uh, when did you decide you wanted to become a scientist? Well, I say I'm from Chicago because middle school, high school, and where my folks are, Chicago. When did I decide I wanted to be a scientist? That's interesting. Probably in the middle of med school, hmm. but that's hard to say, really. Mm-hmm. I had no doctors in the family, and so I applied to medical school out of high school. It was this funny program at, that Brown University had. I see. So, and I thought at the time I was more interested in politics, and I thought I would do preventive medicine in psychiatry, which would be community organizing. Huh. So I joined the Health Service Corps under Carter, but then Reagan dismantled it when I was doing my PhD. Mm. But anyway, I didn't know that I was going to be a scientist, but I was always interested in the brain, like from high school on. Uh, my friends were never surprised that I became a scientist, but I was. Why weren't they surprised? Because I was always talking about the brain. You yeah. know, you know, if we were talking about philosophy, I'd have some brain angle on it. Nowadays, that's just hackneyed. I mean, everybody does that. I see. Too much, I think. But, you know, if we're talking about art... I'd have some idea about what it is about the brain that lets us see things as beautiful or something. But you say you didn't realize it yourself, so what was the moment that that really made you realize? In the middle of med school, I was in this program in med school, okay? And and I had ideas about all kinds of things, but especially about the brain. Let me back you up. In high school, in sophomore year in high school, I learned what a synapse was. And I went home and I worked out a theory of learning. All by yourself. All by myself, yeah. And, and I argued with my dad all night about it. And he told me it was just nonsense. And I remember my high school sophomore teacher, Mrs. Aggers, told me to stick with my guns and, and, uh, and just keep going with these ideas. Oh, wow. And it turns out it was Hebb's theory. Uh-huh. And so he beat me to the punch. <laughs> but I learned that a few years later and I thought, oh, you know, I should be a neuroscientist because I have these intuitions. Yeah. The irony is, is that nowadays I think Hebbian plasticity has way less to do with learning and memory than most of the field thinks. Mm-hmm. I'm fond of saying that LTP has as much to do with learning and memory as ATP. I see. It's, you know, it's essential, but it misses the point. So I can now I can piss off half of your yeah. <laughs> audience because oh, everyone's funny. spending their time studying it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, so then in undergrad, I read a lot of philosophy, mm-hmm. and I had this idea that um, you really couldn't understand understanding itself, okay, knowledge, thought, mm-hmm. without kind of uniting or kind of breaking down the barrier between efference and afference, you know, or sensory and and motor. Okay, irrespectively. But at one point, I decided I had to come up with something testable about it. So I had this idea that the development of the kitten visual cortex, the aspects of it that were of interest at the time, which were ocular dominance columns and orientation domains, Mm -hmm. columns really, that they emerged by having a diffusible permissive molecule representing the cardinal directions of eye movement, so proprioception in some sense, from the oculomotor system to the visual cortex, and that that would allow for heavy plasticity. So that was providing kind of a permissive cue. And I went and talked to a, a psychologist named James Anderson, 
And, you know, Jim was a great guy. He was one of the early connectionist guys. He worked with Cajonan and did things on his own as well, of course. He was very nice, but he wouldn't talk to me about it unless I learned to program a computer and made a model of it. Hmm. So I taught myself this obscure language called APL, and I did make a model, and it kind of blew Jim away because he thought that, you know, those kinds of models typically blow up. So he was surprised I, I came back, and now I realize as a professor that he was kind of blowing me off. <laughs> Anyway, we ended up having an abstract about it at the Minnesota Neuroscience meeting. It was ages ago. Mm -hmm. And I went off and thought I would test this idea. So I left medical school in the middle and went to Berkeley and, uh, and worked with Ralph Freeman, who had published a paper in Science about proprioception from ocular muscles gating plasticity in visual cortex. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that finding held up. There was a French group that also seemed to support that idea, but definitely not a dominant theme in neuroscience for sure. But either way, that's what I left and did a PhD in, at Berkeley with Ralph. Mm -hmm. And so there was, again, sort of this thing where you kind of separately, just by thinking, sitting there and thinking about it yourself, you kind of came to this conclusion that such a thing might exist and then were you surprised often to find that people had actually been working on this or identified actual factors? I guess at the time, I didn't know enough to be surprised. And I didn't just think, you know, I mean, I thought about things and I still do, like in a very abstract, vague way that isn't terribly disciplined. Mm -hmm. And then the discipline comes from reading the literature, which I'm really crappy about even <laughs> now. It sort of doesn't bother me. If I have some idea and I've worked it out and I'm just keen on it, and then suddenly some, someone says, well, someone did that experiment 20 years ago, I'm, I'm kind of proud of it. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, but you got to be careful because, you know, then I, I could waste postdocs and graduate students' time on some things. But anyway, we all have to do, I have to do better due diligence than I do. But anyway, so that's a that that's an issue. And then the other one is I'm, I'm willing to live in kind of a vague world of ideas without getting concrete. But, you know, Jim Anderson kind of or really just to go off and propose to someone that I want to do a PhD in their lab. Mm -hmm. Just before there were like a lot of neuroscience programs, we could just come in and just say, I just want to rotate through labs and... And, and not know what you want to do. I, I wrote to this guy saying, I want to do these particular experiments, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. But then you have to think about um, the concrete, right? Sure. So as you mentioned, you went on to Ralph Freeman's lab at Berkeley. And so what were you working on when you were there? Well, I worked on a lot of things, you know, in collaboration with lots of people. And, and I did try to work out this proprioception from eye muscles, but it was too hard a project for a first-year grad student who required surgery that was way over my head. Uh, and it was difficult. And probably, even if there, if there is an effect there, it's a weak effect. So, you know, I think that the idea was wrong. But I then, I learned a lot more about computational issues. And I had, at the time, David Marr's book was just popular. This was in the early 80s. And so, you know, this book Vision that he wrote after he got his diagnosis of leukemia before he died. And it was all the rage. And then we all read it. it was sort of like the beginning of computational vision, computational neuroscience. And I had some ideas about it that I thought, I thought the ideas in it were like really clever and interesting and they were dominant in the field, but I also thought they were wrong. Mm. The main thing I thought was wrong, and it still holds in our field, is an overemphasis on the representation of information. You know, if you're a computer scientist, you think the problem in vision is effectively representing information and the representation is tantamount to perception if it gets to a kind of a high enough level of representation, right? You know, it has enough invariance. A chair is a chair no matter its orientation, size, its color, and so forth. And the object of vision would be to sort of put together the pieces until you had a representation that, you know, somehow conformed to perception. And people had this idea, I think, implicit for the most part, people didn't usually state it aloud, was that if information is represented in the visual cortex, say extra stride visual cortex, maybe even V1, then that was pretty close to perception. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, they knew that that wasn't completely true. Like we don't perceive everything that's represented in our visual cortex. But because representation carried so much weight to the field, and I think it still does carry too much weight in the field, they would invent concepts like attention to explain. And so we have these ideas out there that are, I think, 
were you know problems generated because the framework was itself let's just say prejudiced i mean the word i'm really thinking is flawed mm -hmm. and we do this in a lot of fields you know we invent what's a good example we invent temporal difference learning because we characterize the learning process as a markov decision process and have a credit assignment problem Mm -hmm. But it maybe learning process isn't a Markov decision process, in which case you really wouldn't have this credit assignment. This goes on and on and on. Okay, right. so but in any case, uh, what I started thinking, and this came from philosophy, was that the way to th the thing that was closest to perception in our brains wasn't so much the representation, but more getting a confirmation or an answer to an interrogation that was effectively about what we're going to do with our bodies. You know, that's sort of a way to think about it, at least in a in a rudimentary way, like with the kind of the version of cognition that you could see earlier in evolution in animals, animals that don't have kind of our consciousness. So just to clarify, so that it's maybe you were thinking perception is a little more grounded, less in the concept of an object, but actually in your actual sensory inputs, would that be? Yes, I call it, now I call it a provisional affordance, that, that provisional meaning you don't have to do the thing, but the affordance meaning that like space, for example, is what you might do with your gaze. I see. So our knowledge of space isn't where, this is Helmholtz speaking now, me, me, me channeling Helmholtz, is that, um, you know, Helmholtz would say, our knowledge of space is not where the object lands in the retina, but rather what it would take to grasp the object with the gaze. Okay, now what does that really mean? It kind of says to a neuroscientist, where do I want to put my electrode? In an area that's sort of keeping up with a changing world and representing the information, and we know we have those. My, my rant against representation is not that we don't have representations, it's mm -hmm. just that that is not what gives us perception. I okay. see. So, but rather, so you say, well, no, what it is is that you have this, this brain that's in the business of trying to work out where we might reach, touch, look, walk to, avoid. Or if we're talking ventral stream, we still are talking how type language, you know, mm -hmm. don't want to eat this, mate with it, play with it further, run away from it, and, you know, consider it later after I take option one, you know, so on and so mm -hmm. forth. So it's more a kind of a directed thing we do. You could say it's, you know, even abstract thought, an extension of things we do with our body. Now it's not with our body, it's more with things like strategy or something. So it's almost like scanning for things that we need for basic actions. That we're going yeah, to take. right. Now you could say, what is it in the brain that lets us do that? And you know, so that doesn't solve problems to restate the problem in another way. But but it kind of gives us an idea where you know, so to speak, where to put the electrode. Mm -hmm. If I was interested, let's say, in perception of color independent of spectral content, you know, the real perception of color, I wouldn't be looking for area V sub X that represents the color and does a bunch of transformations. Right. That's, those transformations don't have to be done. Right. But I'm looking for an area that has persistent activity and can hold on to information after the information has come and gone that would let me decide to eat the rose. I see. So I can definitely see how this already foreshadows the work that you are even doing now. Um, but just to back up a sense, so this you started working on this already when you were in, in Berkeley? I was driven by it, yeah. The hypothesis about proprioception providing a gating signal for heavy and plasticity is basically saying it's not enough to think about the sensory information alone. You know, neurons that fire together, wire together kind of thing. You would have to think about what it was for, which is say, looking at things. And so, so in some sense, that theme remains very much alive right now. Yeah, sure. And so is that how you ended up in Bill Newsom's lab? Sort of. I went back to medical school not knowing if I really wanted to finish it, not knowing if I wanted to do clinical medicine at all. And as I mentioned, you know, the health service corps had been dismantled by then. And so there was no way I could do this, you know, go out to an underserved community and practice. 
and I w- and I had been bitten by the bug, and I felt like I I wanted to do science. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know that I wanted to do animal research at the time because I I'd started started with some work in cats and kittens. I didn't like it actually, and and then I thought maybe I would just do human work, psychophysics. You just didn't like working with animals. I didn't like it, but the thing is, all it took was going back to medical school, and I suddenly realized the importance of what seemed to me kind of arcane problems that people were working on. I suddenly thought, oh my goodness, you know, these things that I'd kind of written off are probably our best chance to understand how the cortex works and therefore how ultimately it will fail. You know, and the idea that if you understand something about any piece of cortex, you're pro- or neocortex anyway, you're probably learning something about other parts that could fail, say, in mm-hmm. disorders of higher brain function. I just felt so clueless and so frustrated with the state of basic knowledge of brain function, the rational approach to a patient with a disorder of higher brain function. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I just became a true believer suddenly. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that it was in my comfort zone, so when I ultimately did gravitate to Bill's lab, I began, I, so I should say that I, I decided to do a residency. Mm-hmm. was going to do a postdoc with Bob Wirtz, actually, at NIH, mm-hmm. but he suggested I do a residency first and then do my postdoc. So I thought I would do that at his, you know, very recent trainee, Bill Newsom, was moving from Stony Brook to Stanford. So as he got to Stanford, I was starting my internship. And we collaborated all through my internship and residency. But, you know, me doing more theory at the time and occasionally learning to record from the monkey. Mm-hmm. So Ken Britton, who was a postdoc in Bill's lab, taught me to record from the monkey. And I wasn't sure I wanted to do it, but I, was, I thought it was, we would do it humanely, and I felt comfortable about it. And so that's what happened. So you've been talking a lot about your interest in visual processing, and not just visual processing, but really, you know, where does perception actually come from? Which, as you hinted, you know, would be areas that are scanning the environment for actionable objects. And so basically, when you were in the Newsome lab, you started looking at the relationship between this kind of visual processing and also decision-making, motor decision-making. Um, and you used a visual discrimination task. Basically, using this task, you identified an area called the LIP, the lateral intraparietal area. So why did you have the idea to look for the decision signal there in this particular area? Let me clarify a couple things. We didn't discover LIP, the lateral intraparietal area. I always credit Richard Anderson. There are actually a few other people who had been studying that part of the parietal cortex before, but Richard Anderson identified it as the part of Bergman's Area 7 that projects to the frontal eye field and the spirit colliculus. And they had published, and so had a few other people, these papers showing that there are neurons that have persistent activity. So they kind of, they can hold information through a time gap where the after information had come and gone. And if you think about that, holding something through a time gap is a bit like integrating an impulse into a step. Maybe explain that a little more. So if you have an impulse, a very brief on and off, Mm-hmm. Now you take the integral of that, you get a step. You can sort of think of a working memory signal as the integral of, a, of an impulse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're basically adding up all of that, that information for, across time is what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah. But that, that information, if it was a little impulse, is a little number and then zero after mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. It was also zero before that. But that number just persists now in the integral. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah. So anyway, so I didn't really have the idea to look at this area. Bill Newsom had the idea, and other people in the lab were interested. In, and I remember the day that Bill said that I should probably work on this problem, and it would be important. And so, um, so I have to give Bill all the credit for that. Yeah. Now we had worked out together with Tony Mofshin and Ken Britton and a lot of other people that were in the lab at the time what the basic computations were that would relate signal-to-noise measurements you could make at the level of physiology with signal-to-noise measurements you could make at the level of behavior, which is 
accuracy, you know, sensitivity and things like that. So Bill and Ken and Tony had already started on that work before I joined them. But I got very much involved in some of the theory. And when you write down the theories and you start thinking about the problem as us with our computer programs doing inference on the signals that you're measuring in the visual cortex, you start thinking, well, could the rest of the brain do something like that? To be honest, I think it's one way of thinking about computational neuroscience, and I don't think it's thought about properly right now. I think we're in a phase where people are thinking about things in a bit of a strange way. But for me, an important constraint for computation is a simplicity of the form that you would think is something that neurons could do. And um, I think that right now we've been kind of invaded by very powerful algorithms from machine learning that have very little to do with what brains can do. It has a lot to do with what machines can do very impressively. Mm -hmm. And so I think we start thinking, I think we're thinking a little bit funny. But for me anyway, and you never know if you're right or wrong, mm -hmm. but, but the constraints on theories of computation were that I should be able to write down the elements of the computation, things that were represented by variables, x and y and so forth. And those variables are intensity values, they're numbers. And those intensities must be represented in firing rates of neurons that I could record because they have, those are numbers that have to be manipulated. And furthermore, if they're firing rates, since we measure rates over many trials, it must be that there must be many neurons that share the same kinds of rates. Mm -hmm. In a way, that's a bit of a circular justification for something we already see in the cortex. Mm -hmm. But it's an interesting idea, and if you think about it a bit, you'll realize there's a lot of ideas that are very popular right now that I think actually are not consistent with that way of thinking. In any mm -hmm. case, so we had these ideas about the readout of MT, the middle temporal area where the, where the motion signals were present, the sensory signals, what I now call the evidence or momentary evidence for a decision. And we thought, okay, well, what are you going to do with that information? You're going to integrate it as a function of time. So LIP, back to LIP now, LIP has this property. A, it got input from MT, and B, it carried that information ultimately to the oculomotor system, which is how the monkeys were trained to answer left versus right, say. And it had this critical feature that it had this persistent activity. So it could hold on to information after the information had come and gone. And the hypothesis was that it would then integrate information. So it would hold on to information, but then it would bump up or down based on what the next bit of information was, which is all, that's just a word in words, what an integral is. Right, right, exactly. And so why did you guys choose this? Is decision making like the assay or was that actually more like the subject you guys were interested in? Uh, it was the subject we were interested in. To be honest, now decision making to me, and probably it was even to Bill at the beginning, actually if you look at the titles of Bill's earliest papers, they had the word decision in it. Yeah. So he was already thinking about that. I think about decision making as a window on higher brain function okay. that you know of cognition. Remember going back to this motivation from my neurology clerkship, let alone residency, yeah. to try and figure out what it is about a normal brain that makes us not confused. And decision-making is just a little, I think, tractable problem that exposes principles of cognitive neuroscience, things like integrals and terminating rules, because you're and operating under, the, under flexible time, not time dictated by the world or dictated by the need to control body musculature you know, in real time. And if you think about it, those are the building blocks of cognition. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was one insight that came during residency. I, I did my residency at Stanford, and the county hospital that we did rotations in was at, in San Jose. And at the time that I was in residency, 
I'm not trying to make light of what's tragic in people's lives, but the drug that was sort of fashionable to overdose on was PCP. It was called angel dust at the time. And the thing is, is that you could always make the diagnosis while intensive care people and psychiatrists and were all puzzled about why the person was crazy and mm-hmm. acting paranoid and stuff. But you could make the di- diagnosis from across the room as a neurologist because you'd notice a peculiar aspect of the eye movements that's called gaze evoked nystagmus. Yeah. And it's a sign of a failure of, a, of an integrator in the brainstem. The thing that converts a velocity as a function of time to the position signal. And so, you know, I started thinking, well, you know, if you leak integrators, you also can't keep track of information from the past to the present to the future. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this syndrome of just absolute confusion could be attributed to leaky neural integrals, both in the brainstem and in the cortex. It's like a basic building block that affects everything. Are there other diseases that that you know of that have this, like where, you know, we think of them as very complex cognitive diseases, but maybe there's more basic seeming functions that are very obviously affected and always in the same way? Well, that's a speculation. My speculation is that the principles of cognitive neuroscience revealed by these relatively simple paradigms like perceptual decision-making, those principles will also turn out to be um, the, the mechanisms, I should say, that support those principles, integration, bound setting, a few other things, will turn out also to be the modes of failure in a variety of diseases. Yeah. And those diseases will include things like autism, schizophrenia, attention deficit disorder, and so on and so forth, you know, maybe even dementia. And so, the, you know, the ultimate causes in genes and toxins and so forth, you know, that, that'll be varied. But the, the way that we connect those problems, those etiologies, to the manifestations of this disease, that is the, the failures of cognition, mm-hmm. uh, will be through mechanisms that I think will involve those basic building blocks, those rudiments of cognition. Right. But it's wishful thinking. But that's really why I moved to Columbia, actually, um, was because I became interested in interacting with people that work at a circuits and cell and even molecular level, because I think that ultimately we'll be working out, well, not ultimately, we're trying to do it now, at a much more refined circuit level, the kinds of operations that are exposed in the work, basically in monkeys, because they're clever enough to do these interesting tasks. Yeah that expose the principles. But then we'll, uh, you know, we need to understand that at the circuit level in order to ultimately fix those circuits in disease. Yeah. That's my 20-year plan. I see. Have you gotten started on that at all? Have you been able to work with some people? Yeah, definitely. You can't actually make knockout monkeys, I guess. No, but that's why we have to work in other animals. So we have, you know, beginning to set up mice in my lab. I'm not abandoning the monkey model for reasons I said, but I think that it's, again, you know, in evolution, you know, one would like to think that neocortex is neocortex. That may not be true. Mm-hmm. A lot of differences between mice and, and monkeys, and it could be that for, for the problems I'm talking about, we're not going to succeed in the mouse, but I'm hoping we will because of the genetic toolkit, basically. Sure. There are lots of ways to go about uh, working with rodents, but sticking to mice, I think it's probably not wise to try to recapitulate the monkey model. I'm happy that some labs are trying to do it, but I think it's going to be tough going. Here's, a good, here's a one important insight, is that when we see a signal that we think is interesting and cognitive, meaning it's not something we can explain as a sensory response, and not something that seems kind of related to the motor response. Now, this is not to say that the motor system's not 
interesting. It's fascinating. A lot of things to work out. And the same thing still goes for the sensory system, even in areas like motion vision, where we know a lot. But nonetheless, when we're trying to sort things out from that, like say, what are the signals of, that involve deliberation, whatever that means? Okay, I'll tell you what it means. It means integration of the evidence, da 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 okay, in some format that makes it useful for inference, let's just say. So, how do we know when we're looking at an interesting signal that we're not just looking at a sensory signal or not just looking at an eye movement planning signal? Well, the way we know that is we tease things apart in time, we tease things apart with difficulty, we compare error trials to correct trials. There are a variety of things that convince us that we're looking at a signal that isn't sort of trivially explained, from our point of view, trivially in the sense of explaining away mm -hmm. our cognitive kind of interpretation, okay? But actually, that's a serious challenge. Yeah. Both the sensory side and the motor side are challenging. The point is there are challenges to looking at, at neural responses that let you think with some security you're looking at a signal that is not explained by sensory processing or motor processing alone. And to do that requires lots of trials and a lot of flexibility with the task. Right. For that reason, it's going to be hard to design mouse tests that rival the complexity of the monkey test. On the other hand, if a mouse piece of cortex has persistent activity, then we could study its basis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and maybe to go back a little bit, um, we actually did want to ask, so in addition to just identifying the areas that might be responsible for phenomena you're interested in, also you can actually do the recordings and kind of predict the monkey's behavior. Can you actually tell us how that works and, you know, if you remember the first time you actually were able to do this? Sure. Well, the first thing is that even when you're recording in the visual cortex, that our ideas that connected the fidelity of the neural signals, the sensory signals, to the fidelity of the monkey's perception, that is, his error rate, that, you know, we had this idea that we could track the noisiness of the neuron, single neuron, mm -hmm. to whether or not the monkey would be correct or incorrect on that trial, whether he'd answer left or right. So we, I would sit there with headphones on sometimes and see how well I could predict the monkey's choices. And I think that if you work out the math, it's really tiny. You're only ever so slightly above chance. But you are above chance, and that was fun. But that's <laughs> really very compelling. You know, yeah. it's like, you know, could I tell a, an unfair coin that was like 0.6 in favor of heads? Well, it would take a lot of flips of the coin. So you're not really blown away on a single trial. And if you are, you don't understand probability and statistics. Mm -hmm. But when we went to LIP, we had these neurons that were firing like crazy when the monkey was going to make an eye movement to some target in the periphery of the visual field. And we knew that it could fire forever, mm -hmm. not forever, but, you know, seconds yeah. before an eye movement. So then the neurons, they're still pretty far from the motor system. But nonetheless, they're able to discharge way before the monkey gives an answer. So those neurons you'd be showing the stimulus and the monkey, as far as you know, is, hasn't made up his mind. He certainly has told you the answer and there and you'd know what he's going to answer. And that was pretty striking. And that's a single trial observation. You have to turn down the, you know, the volume and wear headphones because I could tell what the monkey was going to do seconds before he did it. Yeah, that must have been really exciting <laughs> to see. Yes. And kind, but of, it, kind of sci-fi. <laughs> a yeah. little bit yeah. in some ways. Um, but at some, another level, it was a challenge. Mm -hmm. and I remember the first time I presented these results, Paul Glimsher, colleagues who came up roughly the same time, challenged me like crazy about whether or not all I was looking at was a motor signal. I mean, in this case, it's not a motor signal in the sense that it moves muscles because, again, it's occurring in the wrong time frame for that. But nonetheless, just something that was like a planning the eye movement. How do we know it wasn't just that or wasn't even just related to the dynamics of the eye movements, whether the saccade would be short or long or whatever? And we worked like dogs to try and rise to Paul's challenge. 
that's, you know, that's when we began to take much more seriously than we ever had, having come through as sensory neurophysiologists, Bill, you know, I'm thinking of Bill's lab in general, you know, we suddenly had to say, wait a second, we got to think about the oculomotor side as well. But eventually you guys got it. Yes, I think we did. But the thing that's interesting is it's, it's just worth re remembering that the, the flip side of a really interesting signal is that you have to wonder, like one that blows you away, like this predictive signal, you have to wonder whether it's predictive for a trivial reason because it's just telling you what the animal's going to do. Mm -hmm. But we're interested in how he got from the evidence to the to deciding what he was going to do. Right. So that's the harder bit, you know. Mm -hmm. And that's not going to be like a super, super strong signal. It's probably not going to be in just one place in the brain. It's probably not the kind of thing that you can uh, interfere with and shut the monkey down. It's a really important caveat to keep in mind that when we're studying these kinds of signals, in some ways, if they're too compelling, you know, like you've lost um, all your taste receptors for um, sweet, and now you can't taste sweet. Okay, that's fine. But if they're that compelling, they're kind of going to be, you know, at a very low level on the sensory side in that case. Or the monkey can't make an eye movement because he's lost the apparatus to move the eyes. Okay, that's also, you know, it's not to say that's not interesting to know how the motor system works, once again, but it's not getting at the really the meat of the decision-making part, the deliberation part. So, in some sense, as exciting as it was to hear those neurons and be able to sort of feel like we were prescient, you know, and knowing what the monkey was going to do next, you know, yeah. that in fact, that is the, sort of the boring part. Right. The important part for you guys was, is this the real core integration, basically? Yeah. And when it's integration, presumably, it's lots of neurons. Now the cell is not going to be so dominant. Yeah. So in 2011, uh, you wrote an essay that was um, titled Consciousness as a Decision to Engage, where you were saying that neural mechanisms underlying consciousness are similar to the perceptual decision-making processes that we've been discussing. Can you talk about what this idea is? So number one, most of cognitive functions occurs without consciousness in the, in the sense that a philosopher or psychologist would use the term consciousness. Okay, so, you know, we're doing lots of things right now and we're not consciously aware of them. Now, many people are kind of loath to define consciousness. Francis Crick was, he just, he didn't want to define it. And that's because it comes in a lot of flavors, okay? Mm -hmm. But they all involve some kind of subjectivity. And if you're a social psychologist and you want to say, was something conscious or non-conscious, you ask someone. Were you aware? So in a sense, you could say reportability is a key part of at least the assay for, well, I'll call it philosopher consciousness. Mm -hmm. Now, at the same time, the other thesis in that essay is that the neurologist version of consciousness, which is pretty simple. So, you know, you assess the level of consciousness all the time, coma, stupor, obtundation, waking from sleep, and so on and so forth. So the argument I have is that, is that let's call that neurologist consciousness, okay? Mm -hmm. So... Um, is that the basic mechanisms are very similar. They both involve a decision-making component and a decision-to-engage component. And the nice thing about relating them is it begins to make the interesting philosopher consciousness less mysterious. The idea is that, again, in non-conscious processing too, you're doing all those things. You make, your brain is making decisions non-consciously to engage other brain systems to, you know, take the information and maybe use it to reach or something. But I'm suggesting that the particular kind of decision to engage as a, you don't have to do it, so I'll call it a provisional, and now we'll fill in the blank, not reach, not look, not walk to, not possibly mate with, not possibly eat, but how about possibly report, that that will cover a lot of what we think of as conscious awareness, mm -hmm. okay? That when we engage information in a way that involves what we might do with our hand or eyes, 
corresponds to what we experience in our, our knowledge of space. It's what a dog or a cat experiences too. It's the space is a provisional affordance. But now when we think about an object that we now are considering, we don't have to do it, that's why I'm using the word provisional, but we're considering the possibility of reporting to another agent, an agent who has their own attitude to this object and about whom I have theory of mind. Now suddenly this object exists in a reference frame in the world, and that doesn't just have spatiality, it has a presence for another agent too. It has a back that I can't see, it has a presence independent of me. And this, I think, conforms to our qualitative sense, our subjective sense of what objects are. I call that a qualia light argument. It may not satisfy a philosopher that's um, keen on the idea that the subjective component of consciousness is um, untouchable by any explanation. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, I think it comes pretty close to what people really mean by the word qualia. And so anyway, so I think that it's kind of interesting to, to think about consciousness as a, as a philosopher consciousness as a resulting from a decision to engage in a certain way, in this case provisional reportability, the possibility of creating narrative about something. Provisional reportability goes a long way to satisfying a lot of what we mean by our conscious awareness. And the nice thing about this idea is that it's not that it has a solution, that it solves the problem because it begs the question, how do we do this thing about engaging a circuit? Yeah. We don't know the answer to that, but it's tractable because one part of it was decision making. Like waking up from sleep, you make a decision. You don't wake up to the noise of the traffic and you do wake up to the noise of the baby. Mm -hmm. Brain makes a non-conscious decision to engage the world in a certain way. And in all those cognitive processes that don't involve consciousness, same thing goes. You don't look at every single thing in the world, but you do deal with information in spatial ways by deciding to engage that transient as a possible thing you might look at, and it, it suddenly has a presence to you. Maybe not a conscious awareness type presence. The idea is that decision making, well that seems tractable, not that we know everything about it, and engaging a circuit, we don't understand how that really happens, but we can start thinking about candidate mechanisms and kind of think about what we know about waking up from sleep. We start thinking about matrix, thalamic, input to layer one, and so forth. And we start dreaming a little bit about actual mechanisms. And so I find the idea, this theory of consciousness as a decision to engage, appealing not so much because it solves the problem, but because it kind of makes the problem tractable. And we no longer have to solve it with magic a representation at 40 hertz and declaring it conscious or suddenly deciding that there's an explosion in a global workspace that makes this thing that wasn't conscious conscious. That's called magic. Whereas I think that this other idea is, is appealing precisely because it doesn't require magic, although it still has a lot of mystery. That's uh, tantalizing. And so um, last of all, if you could uh, give us a preview for your upcoming talk here at Stanford. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be fun because I'm going to celebrate a project that just came out. So uh, it had been unpublished when I proposed giving this talk. Mm -hmm. And uh, that involves stimulating the brain, Bill Newsom style. But instead of asking the question just about manipulating animals' choices or manipulating animals' choices in reaction time, these are all things that, we've been, that have been done either by Bill or by me, that we now ask whether we can manipulate the animal's confidence, testing really two ideas at once. One is... Does our quantitative theory that unites choice, reaction time, and confidence hold quantitatively? In other words, does activating the visual cortex with a little bit of current change choices and confidence in a way that's commensurate as predicted by the theory? 
That's the question one. And the other one is, you know, you can't ask an animal how it feels to have his brain stimulated, but by asking about confidence, you are asking for somewhat of a subjective or a meta-awareness report, you know, a metacognitive report, they say. That is, I'm not just asking what the decision is, but what about the decision, can you tell me? So we have an opportunity to get a little bit closer to ask the monkey sort of what it feels like to have his brain stimulated. Right. And I won't give you the answer <laughs> when you come to the talk or read the paper. Is that good enough? That will definitely, yeah, that's great. And uh, we definitely look forward to that. So, um, okay. And so the way we usually end uh, the show is to ask you a few rapid fire questions. So I'm going to ask you three questions and you can just come up with a very brief answer, whatever is on the top of your mind. All right. So uh, the first question we always ask is if you could go back in time and speak to yourself as a graduate student, what advice would you give to yourself? Um, I would give my, wow. Or if any. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, as a grad <laughs> student, I think I didn't, I didn't realize how important it was to see the beauty of really focused problems and not worry too much about sort of solving the world's problems in my experiment. You know, I think it's, you know, they say, you know, um, you know, think globally, act locally. I wish I could have seen the importance of sort of refined, reduced, contrived preparations mm -hmm. and see the big picture effectively and realize that what I was doing, which was tiny, which we all do when we're grad students, we're mm -hmm. doing something really small and focused. Mm -hmm. I think I would have enjoyed it a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Second, as an expert on decision making, I'm going to just say that, uh, what is your best technique for making a tricky decision? Oh, God. <laughs> I know you're more of an expert on the neural basis, but... I remember, I don't study decision-making because I'm interested in decisions, per right. se. I study it as a window on higher brain function. Exactly. I'm not a very good decision-maker. <laughs> I think the way we really make decisions is, has less to do with these sort of very simple, simple and quite rational decisions that we train the monkeys to do. Mm -hmm. So if you don't mind, I know you don't want me to give a long answer, mm -hmm. but I think that actually, you know that the point I made about consciousness a little while mm -hmm. ago? Mm -hmm. I think this is one difference I have with Dan Kahneman, if you read his beautiful book, Thinking Fast and Slow. I think that our irrationality actually doesn't emerge from the fast kind of thinking. Our rationality emerges from the slow conscious thinking, because when we tell stories, which is a bit what provisional reporting is about, then we it invites all kinds of interesting kinds of of confusions of the Tversky and Kahneman style. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, our brains keep are pretty rational, like, well, we don't get hit by cars when we cross the street or whatever, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so um, I think what the, the kinds of decisions that we study in the monkey mm -hmm. and the kinds of ones we contrive even in the in the human psychophysics lab are not really like the kinds of decisions that flummox and frustrate us. <laughs> okay, cool. And then the last question we have is, if you had the chance to meet any person from any time, past or present, who would it be and why? I don't know. I'd like to meet Nelson Mandela. You know, I'd yeah. like to meet Gandhi and Maurice Merleau-Ponty. I'd love to meet Maurice Merleau-Ponty. He's the philosopher that influenced me the oh, most. I see. I think I'd like to meet uh, Beethoven. <laughs> that would be uh, you know? Yeah, that's a good handful there. John um, Coltrane. Oh, yeah. That would be, you can have a concert, Beethoven and Coltrane together. Uh, it's noisy. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today, Professor Shadlin. My pleasure. Thanks for talking to me. Bye-bye. And thank you all for listening. We hope you'll join us next week. Since there isn't a seminar speaker, we will be publishing a special episode, so be sure to tune in. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Erica Senor, Mark Padalina, Andrew Gundren, and myself, Ada Yee. 
thanks to Adam Fuchil and Kyle Riley for composing our new theme song. You can find all of the past episodes of Neurotalk, as well as our radio show Brains and Bourbon, and read articles about everything you ever wanted to know about neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E, west.org. This is Neurotalk, and I'm Ada Yee.